great. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to be with you guys tonight and to talk about ethnicity. This is like a topic I love talking about, so let's let's just get, jump in. Um, cool. So um, we're gonna start at the beginning of everything. So if uh, if you like have a Bible, you don't really have to pull it out. I just wanted to turn your attention to the beginning part of the Bible. Um, we're going to start in Genesis. So the author of Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He takes formless, wild, chaotic waters, and he separates them, and he makes order and structure out of chaos and nothing. He creates these spaces, and then he fills them with creatures um, and plants. And then his last crowning jewel, the end of creation, is mankind. And this is where we're starting. So this is Genesis 1, 26 to 8. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. So, um, God creates mankind in his image that they may rule over all living things. And then he blesses them to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. What does this mean? Um, God has just created everything and then in his perfection, everything he creates is good and perfect, right? So even before the fall, before sin, before Adam and Eve do some questionable things, um, God uh, created people in his image and gave them a blessing and a purpose. Um, we as people are told to be fruitful and increase in numbers, right? To have babies, to put bluntly, and uh, create new life. Uh, we are, after all, made in the image of the creator, like creating new life, right? And we're told to fill the earth and to do it. This world that we live in is a really big place with really different climates, atmospheric pressure, elevation above and below sea level, right? Plants and animals, temperatures and more. There are jungles and rainforests, deserts, temperate forests, tundras, mountains, you name it, right? So um, here are a couple pictures that I pulled off of the internet. None of these pictures are mine. Um, <laughs> on your right, you see the lovely Blue Ridge Mountains that are uh, that part of our go through Virginia. So there are these like old rolling mountains like the Blue Ridge, which honestly a lot of people around the world would be like, those aren't really mountains, those are hills. Um, and then on the other side, you have the, this is the Himalayan Mountain uh, Range, right? Like the tallest mountains in the world. They're rugged, they're always snow-topped, they're dangerous to climb. Um, we have lots of different mountains. Another example of this are beaches. Um, on the top, that is Virginia Beach, <laughs> um, which is beautiful in its own right, right? There are like crabs and seagulls and beautiful sunsets and water and all these things. And then underneath that, you have a picture of Bali uh, with palm trees and clear turquoise water. And, right? This world is really beautiful and it's really diverse. The diversity of it actually makes it even more rich and beautiful. And similarly, even if the fall never were to have happened and were never to have entered the world, if Adam and Eve had taken their task seriously and had babies and multiplied and filled all the corners of the earth, they would have encountered different natural resources and environments. Uh, whichever of their offspring would have gone into the deserts would have found like sand and uh, cacti and 
temperatures and it's hot, but then it's freezing in the, in the uh, nighttime and like would have had to figure out a way to survive, but not only survive, to thrive and to create art and culture. And uh, they would have learned like what suitable farming techniques worked and what didn't. Um, they would have created technology in order to advance their civilization, right? Um, and then they would have passed on this knowledge from generation to generation um, with all the like better ways to store food, better materials to use for clothes, better techniques for keeping records. Um, and this passing on the culture would eventually make this people into an ethnicity. Ethnicity is a grouping of people based on a common cultural history. So, uh, we see that even before the fall, God intended for us to have ethnicities. Why though? Why would God do this? Because the image of God is reflected uniquely by every culture and every person and is way too big to be contained by one person, one uh, people, or one culture alone. Right? All together, we reflect the image of God in more fullness than we can do apart. So I want you to look at this picture of a prism. A prism takes white light and refracts it into all these different colors, right? Um, so let's take red, for example, right? You can't just be like, well, red is a reflection of the white light, so red is white, right? You can't do that. Um, it's the same way, like, you cannot say, I, or my people, or my culture, reflects the is the image of God. Um, but you can't say, my people, my culture, my ethnicity, me, I, reflect, uh, reflect, uh, what am I trying to say? Oh, yeah, reflect the image of God, right? Like, we reflect the image of God, but we're just a part of it. Like, um, all of humanity and all of its diversity and beauty reflects this image of God in greater fullness. Um, and, and, it, and you get a beautiful, more glorious view of that white light of God, right? So that's what God's intent for his ethnicity was. To bear his image in a particular, unique way. And all the cultures and ethnicities of the world over all of time, right, because over time culture changes, um, would beautifully and collectively bear his image. And all the earth would be like this beautiful prism showing the majesty and the glory of God. Isn't this beautiful? I was like writing this talk and looking at these pictures and being like, wow, this is so beautiful. Like, <laughs> I wish that I like looked at the world this way a little more, you know? This is the purpose of multi-ethnicity, and this is why it's a beautiful, good thing. God created it for good. What excites you about this picture of multi-ethnicity? So this is beautiful, but like, this isn't what we see in our world, right? In our world, we see a really different picture of ethnicity. Because our world isn't perfect. It's damaged by evil, it's corrupted by sin. Humans wanted to grasp that power for themselves. They wanted to be able to redefine good and evil the way that they wanted to do so, rather than how God defines good and evil, right? So what we see today are three different ways that ethnicity is broken. Um, the first one is conflict, um, which kind of sounds from pride, which is what So ethnicities make us different, right? But we don't like what we don't understand, what we don't know, and so sometimes, um, we demonize, isolate, and push away what's different from us. Maybe we think that ours is a superior, and we make sure that everyone knows it. We force our worldviews and ways of doing things onto other people because, clearly, they're the best. And, by definition, if, if my worldview 
view my culture, my people, my thoughts, the way that I see things is the best, everyone else must be wrong and inferior. Or sometimes uh, ethnicity is a thing that we feel ashamed of. Maybe you're in a group and your ethnicity means that you're different from most of the group members. And that can be really hard and you can feel really left out. Or maybe people within your ethnic group uh, focused on your differences within the group and rejected you. Sometimes we just distance ourselves from our ethnicities. We say, oh, I'm not like those people, my people, or I'm not like them, and point out our own culture. We demonize, isolate, and push away our own ethnicities. Or maybe we're completely ignorant of our own ethnicity. We don't know anything about it, whether by active choice or because someone else decided that for us. Maybe in the past, your grandparent, parent, or some other ancestor encountered conflict or shame with their ethnicity, and so they distanced and disowned their ethnicity, right? Successful disowning in one generation turns into ignorance in the, in the next. Or maybe we don't know anything about our ethnicity because there's no way to know of it. Maybe it was taken from you or taken from someone in your family in the past because of conflict. Um, somehow you've been cut off from it. And maybe, uh, or maybe you have many ethnicities and some have been just lost in time or transition. On top of all these things, uh, gonna just give you more bad news, um, we live in a racially broken society. Um, and I'm not gonna do this any justice, uh, but I just want you to know that race and ethnicity are different things. There is bro brokenness in both, but they're not, not necessarily the same. And particularly in America, race is a social construct that was created to justify the systematic dehumanization, subjugation, and genocide of large groupings of people and it still has applications that last in effect today. So, um, just like dropping that bomb on you, how have you experienced brokenness in your ethnic or racial story? Um, so, y'all are in a series called Back to Jesus, so let's um, turn to Jesus, right? Before I read our main passage for tonight, um, I would love for you to pray with me. Jesus, um, you are good. God, you're good. Thank you for showing us the beauty of um, ethnicity and multi-ethnicity and um, uh, your intent and purpose and the way that this is a blessing that and a gift. Um, but Lord, oftentimes it doesn't feel like a gift. There's a lot of brokenness and pain there's a lot of heart harm and physical hurt. Um, Lord, we ask for your help as we grapple with these different things. Jesus, would you show us the hope you have to offer us and speak to us through this passage? We pray these things in your name. So we're going to camp out in Luke 19, 1-10. Um, we're going to just start off with uh, half, about half of the passage. Okay, this is Luke 19, 1 to 6. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus! 
Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Okay, before we jump into this, I just want to give a little disclaimer. If any of you grew up in the church like I did, or in a church like, like the one that I did, um, maybe you like grew up in Sunday school and learned like a little song about the kids. And I'm going to really, really hope and, tr- uh, and try to break this song. <laughs> it's not helpful as we try and actually dig in. And a lot of times, like children's stories from like growing up and stuff, just like make me automatically think like, oh yes, I'm supposed to be like this character at the end of the story. Um, and usually it misses the point. So. Um, Try with me to like put that to the side as we dig in, okay? Okay. Um, so uh, I didn't tell you what happened before this passage, but from the passage before this one, um, what we find out is that Jesus was heading towards Jericho, and he's surrounded by a crowd of people. Actually, on his way to, uh, into Jericho, there's a blind man who starts yelling, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me!" People are like, "Shh, shut up! We don't want to hear from you. We want to hear from Jesus." And the blind man is like, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me!" And then Jesus asks him, what do you want? And he says, I want to see. And then he goes, go, your faith has healed you. And he's healed this blind man. And so the crowds um, have, are welcoming him into Jericho, and they get to see this thing. In the Middle East, when a dignitary or celebrity comes to town, the whole town comes out to welcome and escort them. The farther the town goes out to receive them, the more important the person is. So a modern equivalent would be like, or not a modern necessarily, but like a Western equivalent, I guess, would be like, um, when a celebrity comes into the airport and there's like crowds of people there to welcome them, right? The bigger the crowd, the more uh, important-ish the person is who's coming, right? So as this, the crowds are escorting Jesus towards Jericho, they're probably bustling with this excitement as they try and figure out the best hospitality the community can offer Jesus. In the Middle East, um, you as a dignitary don't get to choose your accommodation. The community will figure it out for you. Um, the more important you are, the better your treatment. And so, um, also just like think about it, right? It's an honor to be able to um, host your digni- the, di- the dignitary, right? Could you imagine if you got to um, welcome a celebrity into your house for a night? Pretty cool. Um, so when we pick up into this text, Jesus has entered Jericho already, and it says he's passing through, right? All this excited preparation to receive Jesus and host this much-talked-about man this person that the crowds got to see heal a blind man. And then he's like, I'm not staying, I'm just passing through. Probably a little disappointing for the crowds. The Israelites at this time are living under the thumb of Rome. Ethnic conflict has resulted in Roman victory. And as the victors, the Romans get to exert their definition of humanity um, and superiority on the Israelites. In this empire, Israelites aren't citizens, and they don't have rights as as non-citizens. But they're part of the empire anyway. In order for Rome to keep up their empire, they need money, right? Money to wage war, to expand their empire, to create social infrastructure like roads, to fund their government projects. And how do they get this money? The same way that our government gets money, right? Taxes. Um, Particularly to heavily tax the provinces. The Romans loved getting the locals of provinces to collect their taxes. So these local tax collectors were usually not really given a salary of their own. In order for these local tax collectors to make any profit, they had to charge people more than what they were trying to get from them. They had to export their people for even more money than the already high amounts that Rome was demanding. 
circumstances, a lot of tax collectors took advantage of their powerful backing and became super wealthy off the backs of their neighbors. Now, as a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus had people under him who collected taxes, meaning his underlings extorted enough money for Zacchaeus to skim off money from the top, each tax collector to skim off money from the top, and still give what Rome demanded to Rome. Can you see why Israel hated their tax collectors so much? <coughs> These people were traitors. They cared more about their profit than for the ways that they were directly throwing their neighbors and kinsmen into poverty. This Zacchaeus, not just short little, cute little Zacchaeus who wants to climb up a tree to see Jesus, right? This Zacchaeus, this hated Zacchaeus, wants to see Jesus. What does it mean that he wants to see Jesus and he can't see Jesus? Well, if he tries to push through the crowds, to get to the front. Um, he's not just going to go unnoticed, right? What will people think if they saw him go to the front? It's not just a like, oh, uh, oh no, my reputation is ruined. He doesn't have a good reputation already, right? His life could be in danger. People hate him, right? They've experienced the effects of the things that he has done to them, and, and if they could have a chance in the chaos of the crowds to harm him, to even kill him, and get some revenge, that might happen. So, uh, clever Zacchaeus tries to figure out how do I get a way to see Jesus? And he goes up to a sycamore fig tree. Um, this sycamore fig tree is rumored to be the same one that Zacchaeus climbed up. Um, I, I say rumored. The websites that I looked at were like, this is the tree, but like, they also weren't necessarily the most reputable websites. <laughs> so, we don't know, but apparently this is a tree that a lot of people, when they go to Jericho, they're like, this is the tree that Zacchaeus was on. Um, okay, so you notice how this tree is huge, right? They take up lots of space. So actually, due to their size, they were usually grown several feet outside of the city. So, this is what Zacchaeus really does when he climbs up the tree. He thinks to himself, I don't want people to know that I'm trying to see Jesus, and I don't really want to be noticed, right? but I still want to see Jesus. And so if I run out outside of the city, there's sycamore fig trees, and they're huge, and maybe their dense foliage can cover me, and I'll go and notice it unseen. And by the time Jesus walks through, he's probably going to hit this tree, so I'll climb up this tree. Um, and by this time, the crowds would have thinned out, right? They would have given up on escorting Jesus outside of their town, and they would have been like, well, it's a good try. We couldn't convince him to stay with us, but okay. Right? This is probably what Zacchaeus is thinking when he's like, climbing up the sycamore fig tree. It's not just a, like, I want to see Jesus so bad, but I'm so short, I can't do it, I'm going to climb tree. It's like, I don't want people to kill me, and I also don't want anyone to know that I'm doing this, I'm going to go run up a tree off in the distance and hope that no one sees me. But, there's no hiding from Jesus, right? Jesus sees Zacchaeus. He sees the internal shame, the ways that Zacchaeus' status and wealth has isolated him from his people and his community, from the way that Zacchaeus is himself a victim of Roman rule. He sees how Zacchaeus probably hates being a Jew, right? How maybe he even has internalized how Rome, Romans are superior, and he, as an inferior Israelite, um, is less than. Maybe Jesus sees how Zacchaeus has wondered in the past whether he will be accepted by Rome by doing what the Romans want. And in the midst of all this darkness, Jesus extends a hand to Zacchaeus. He disregards his social norms, he looks past all the other community members, and he pursues this person, this tax collector, this sinner, Zacchaeus. And this is where we start to see a change 
and Zacchaeus. He climbs down the tree and gladly welcomes Jesus to his home, publicly walking with Jesus back into town and welcoming the city's guest of honor into his own house. Imagine the crowd's outrage. Jesus just turned down their acts of goodwill and hospitality, and their excitement to receive him is completely disregarded. Jesus chooses instead to honor that loathsome, cheating, sneaky, traitorous, privileged oppressor, Zacchaeus, by spending the night at his place. What a huge slap in the face, right? This is Luke 19, 7 to 10. Um, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody of anything, I will take back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Of course the people are bitter. I would be too. I'd be like, Jesus, you don't seem to understand what's really happening here, right? Like, how could you turn down our hospitality and goodwill, and why would you try and stay at Zacchaeus' place? Don't you know how terrible he is? Do you not see? Did you not know how many lives he's ruined? Do you not see that man over there? He was cheated from Zacchaeus. How could you go to Zacchaeus' house, right? And then we hear Zacchaeus' heart. Without anyone prompting him, Zacchaeus declares he will immediately give half of his possessions to the poor and pay back four times what he's cheated people. He didn't have to say such things. He could have just shamelessly enjoyed Jesus' company. It's not like Jesus was prompting him to say this stuff, right? He could have smugly viewed him as like, yes, I'm the one that Jesus has chosen, right? He could have done these things. But in this declaration, we get to see a glimpse into something deep and profound happening in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has come into contact with Jesus' transformative grace and love, and he can't help but respond in this radical way. Look at what Zacchaeus is saying. If he gives away half of what he has right now to the poor, and then he tries to pay back everyone he's cheated four times the amount. He definitely doesn't have enough money to do that right now, right? Even if he didn't give half of his possessions to the poor at the moment, he probably still doesn't have enough money to pay back four times the amount of everyone he's cheated, right? He's a chief tax collector. He probably doesn't even know the people that he's cheated or how many people he's indirectly cheated. Zacchaeus is pro proclaiming to everyone to, to hear and hold him accountable he's going to live a completely new life. One of reconciliation and reparation. This requires him to work differently. How can he repay all those he owes if he continues to cheat more and more people? He's never going to do that, right? Um, How is he going to work with Rome now, right? He'll have to engage with Rome differently and manage those under him differently, meaning that they too will have to work differently under his leadership. This once man's transformation will completely change Jericho in a lot of different ways, right? And Jesus' response, Jesus's response affirms Zacchaeus' pure intentions. Actually, fun fact, Zacchaeus needs purity, so there you go. Um, against all expectations, this former oppressor, scoundrel, thief, and cheat is declared a son of Abraham, right? He is the very lost that the Son of Man came to seek and save. You see, friends, Jesus sees all of this. He sees it all, 
the way that our pride pits us against each other and creates societies of superiority and inequality? How some of us even have warring identities within our very own blood? How our shame isolates us from our people and ultimately distances us from ourselves and our families? How our ignorance cuts us off from the source of our people and of our families, leaving us to wonder where we came from and who we are? Jesus sees all of this, and he's not daunted by the gravity of it. Right after this encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, where he is crowned with thorns, taunted as king of the Jews, beaten and rejected by the people who he came for, and nailed to a brutal Roman torture mechanism where he dies of suffocation. And then three days later, he rises from the dead, declaring his victory over death forever. This is the upside-down kingdom that Jesus is king of. Jesus' brutal death was, indeed, the coronation of the long-awaited king of the Jews. Where people expected Jesus to bring violent liberation from the oppressive Romans, Jesus allowed himself to be swallowed up by this violence, only to raise from the dead three days later in victory. The brokenness of ethnicity that seemed so large and inescapable was already completely crushed in Jesus. And in Jesus, we too experience that same victory. Jesus loves taking things and completely transforming them to become beyond recognition. The brokenness of ethnicity that marks your story, bring it to Jesus and watch him make it into something breathtakingly beautiful. Even before Jesus dies and is resurrected, Zacchaeus already begins to experience the inexplicable freedom and joy that comes in receiving Jesus. He's so changed by Jesus' crazy grace and love that his whole life changes. He's restored to his people, maybe not externally quite yet, but definitely that inner shame, hatred, or fear he has of being Israelite is clearly different. He gets to embrace being an Israelite and lives into that. No longer a predator of his own people, Zacchaeus will now be a defender and a repairer of his people. The very thing that isolated and drove unjust practices in his life has become the most beautiful thing about Zacchaeus' life. This is how Jesus likes to transform us. You, too, are seen by Jesus right where you are. In all your pain, your suffering, your guilt and shame, you, too, are offered that same social norm-breaking, offensive and radical love for Jesus. You, too, are invited to be radically transformed by Jesus. Whether you're a Christian or not, the invitation laid before you is to offer your pride, your shame, and your ignorance to Jesus. This means that you pray and surrender them to Jesus. And I don't want us to hear this and get all churchy. I want us to really talk to Jesus. Talk through the things that hold you back, and then let go. And in doing this, you're giving up your old way of living. And you're going to have to figure out with Jesus a whole new way to live without grabbing back for that old pride, shame, or ignorance. Will you repent of your ethnic, racial pride, ethnic and racial pride, shame, or ignorance, and entrust your ethnic identity to Jesus? Adopted into the family of God. 
we're sent back into the world to be agents of healing. All this brokenness of, the, of ethnicity was never meant to be. Remember all those beautiful pictures I showed you of mountains and beaches? Ethnicity is made for good. As we follow Jesus, we do so standing firm on a foundation that we are now, first and foremost, children of God. We're a part of the family of God. We're written into his story. We place him on the throne of our lives and we submit to him. Oh, we, we submit to his definitions of who we are, what it means for us to be Latino, uh, Asian American, white, black, Afro-Caribbean, whatever, right? We get to watch and redeem our ethnic stories and actually our original blessing to be culture creators that we received in Genesis, right? And to bear God's image, that continues. In Jesus, we get to ask fun questions like, how do my people uniquely reflect your image, Jesus? Or how does my story actually advance the gospel in a distinctly me and you fashion? Of course, there's both beauty and brokenness in any ethnicity story. So, as we journey with Jesus and are led by him into, into our ethnic identity journeys, we get to rejoice with him in the beauty and mourn over the brokenness while we get to have a front seat, front row seat, to how he wants to redeem the broken parts of our communities starting with us. I'd love to pray for us as we uh, <coughs> enter a time of, I guess, response and just processing, being able to worship and Thank you. 